Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. GM, I'm Dan Roberts. I'm Stacey Elliott. And this is GM from Decrypt. GM. Today we've got Liam Kelly back on the podcast. Welcome. GM Stacy. thanks for having me back on. Uh, so today we're going to be talking to Mitchell Amador, who is the founder of Immunify. As we, you know, we were just talking, that's how you're supposed to pronounce it, Immunify. Um, and so this is basically the hub in where, you know, projects are setting up bug bounties to make sure that they can find and, you know, address vulnerabilities in their code before it gets exploited, hopefully. Yeah, that's usually that's usually the uh, the hope, isn't it? Before it gets exploited, you pay these you you pay out these bounties so that you know maybe uh, a slick black hat hacker, as uh, we'll get to know, doesn't make off with all of your money and uh, make a lot of users very upset. Right, and so as as we were looking at before, you know, Immunify just put out a Q one report looking at some of the trends and you know some of the bad actors and and what they're doing. And then also the folks that have now become what we call white hats, you know, basically hackers turned, you know, I don't know, what do you want to put it? Like folks who are looking out for everybody. They've decided to stop taking our money and they're going to protect our money instead and pocket a bounty while they're at it. So, and maybe even, you know, it's land a nice, uh, nice job, nice job at the end of it. It's not just the bounty. Some of these, some of these folks seem to be getting uh, paid, uh, uh, you know, in, in the form of employment shortly after they discover these, uh, these bugs is interesting yeah and it's certainly a really timely topic just because you know I, I feel like there's hardly a week that goes by that we don't have a new hack or exploit to write about and you know just speaking of those i also interested to kind of talk to mitchell about what what he thinks the difference is between a hack an exploit a scam how do you define a rug pull because we see these terms get thrown around a lot um on crypto twitter but It'd be good to hear, you know, from the source, from the guy who founded Immunify, which one is which. Yeah, absolutely. Laying the, laying the, the table for some of these terms uh, is key because you, you never want to be stuck in a rug pull thinking it's an exploit because then you're calling the wrong people. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's bring them on. All right. GM Mitchell. Amadora from ImmuneFi, the founder of ImmuneFi. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Right back at you. <laughs> um, so let's let's just start this way. Um, just generally, I want to take the temperature. How are you feeling about the crypto industry right now? You know, it's we're off to a rough start again. We're recording on a Monday when there have been more charges from the SEC. I feel like that's kind of become par for the course. Haven't we all been habituated? We just we're just expecting the next letter to come along and preparing accordingly. But um, I feel good. I feel good about where things are going. It's hard not to see all the activity by serious people in the space and not conclude that we really are on the cusp of adoption by many of our more conservative compatriots, right, outside of the, the, the crypto native sphere. So that, that gets me really, really excited. 
Yeah. And then, so I, I want to start because I know perhaps not all of our audience is familiar with ImmuneFi and bug bounties and how all of this works. Um, can you kind of give us like a 40 foot view of like what the purpose is of ImmuneFi and what, what role you guys play in the space? Sure. Okay. That's a broad question. The role we play in the space is to keep as many people safe as possible fundamentally. So this is first and foremost, uh, users, and their funds working on all sorts of projects, be it like a wallet that you may be running, or be it, you know, if you're a DeFi user, maybe you've used Uniswap, maybe you've used a different kind of DEX, you know, we protect a lot of those, or even, you know, L1s themselves, making sure the consensus works properly, cryptography works properly, if there's no way to DOS in it or, or interfere with the system in any particular way. And all these things, our primary job is to protect user funds and the integrity of those systems. And we do that by leveraging the world's largest community of crypto security experts. Their job is to jump in, review code as much as possible, and find any vulnerabilities and disclose them preemptively to the project. Um, why do you want that at a high level? Well, it's impossible to write secure code. And we just, you know, we are all working in this amazingly exciting environment where everything is code dependent. And we're like, okay, let's put all our money into it. Yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, and so we've all put our money into a environment where we know that security is extremely difficult to do. And so you need, you need this type of layer to come in. You need to source the entirety of the world's security mind as much as you can, uh, to protect your code because, you know, it could be a billion dollars in it one day if we're all lucky. Yeah, it's interesting. And I get another way maybe to define what a unify is doing, uh, would be to distinguish it from perhaps like a more classical, uh, auditing firm like an open Zeppelin or perhaps even, you know, uh, something along those lines. Maybe you can draw, draw the distinction between these two types of things. I understand security experts are basically abundant in both of these kinds of uh, firms. So maybe you can, yeah, help clear that up right. as well. Right. So you can think of an audit, uh, an auditing firm as a boutique consultancy, right? You contract a great firm like open Zeppelin or like DDoB and you go to them because you know that they have brilliant minds, just gigabrains all around. And you want to get those gigabrains reviewing your code and telling you all the ways you messed up before you deploy live on mainnet, right? Better that they cast the problems than someone else, but there's only going to be so many of them and they can only put so much time into it. And maybe you can do it with two auditing firms. Maybe you can do it with three, but you, you quickly hit this uh, diminishing returns of what you can get from just going out and hiring individual firms or individual auditors to review your code. Now something like Immunify takes the opposite of approach. We don't contract with any particular firm. We are not security reviewers ourselves. We're not auditors ourselves, although we have many auditors on the team. Rather, we create a system that allows everybody else, every other auditing firm that didn't win that, that project's business, every independent white hat or black hat hacker, every you know Web2 security specialist who looks like he wants to get involved in Web3, every developer at a related protocol who happens to be familiar with the code base and might spot a problem, and we create a channel for them to disclose their vulnerabilities in exchange for rewards predetermined according to a program, which is like a giant contract saying, if you give me such and such in the future, I will pay you such and such money. So our goal, right, in contrast to an auditing firm where you're going to take two, three, four guys and give them your focused attention for two, three, four weeks to review code, our goal is to say, let's gather an infinite amount of people, the largest possible pool of people, 
of security experts and beyond, anybody who wants to participate, and give them an infinite amount of time, as much as we can. They can disclose at any time, and these programs should be running for the lifetime and duration of the projects so that they can deliver vulnerabilities whenever they become relevant. Kind of like the exact opposite philosophical approach to auditing using the same types of people and the same types of skills. Gotcha. So w would you say then what your, you know, bug bounties are a, uh, an additional layer to getting a, a traditional audit from a place like Open Zeppelin, or are these things sort of uh, either or um, in terms of best security practices? How do you define that? Definitely the former, right? Definitely there, you want both of them. If you think about the security stack in crypto, let's suppose, you know, Liam, you're going to create um, Liam Dex. For whatever reason, you have this brilliant idea for a Dex that nobody's thought of. Wouldn't put it past you. You guys are clever people. We know that. You create Liam Dex and you're really, really confident in it, but you know that all of the value of what you've created, all the, the underlying equity, if you will, can be wiped out instantaneously, right? One moment, one exploit, you're done. So what's your response to that? You're going to go engage with auditors. You're going to feel good about that, but you can never really be sure because how can you prove that something is safe? Impossible. Can't be done. You can only prove that some bad things were caught, some unsafeties were addressed and, and remediated in advance. And you're going to do a lot more than that. You're going to hire internally your own security engineer. You're going to use available automated tooling. These are things you should do before the audits. Only then, right, once you've got your house in order on the inside and spent a lot of money there, then you're going to look for audits. After that, you're going to come and talk to us, right? We'll do a testnet or a mainnet bug bounty program for you. And th they all work together. And then even after then, you might add more stuff to the list, right? You might add custom monitoring scripts that you use to see if any funny business is happening. You might buy insurance for your users if you're so lucky to afford it. Fortunately, it's pretty expensive. But, you know, God willing. So you, you want to do all these things together, basically in the row uh, by which you encounter them. And now if you have to choose between them, you know, that's a difficult choice. In my opinion, bug bounty programs have the best value, but I'm a little biased on that. But where possible, you want to do the whole stack. And even then, it's not total. It's not secure. Nothing is. Right. Like no nothing can really be 100% safe unless you just don't do it right. <laughs> the, the safest way to make sure something is safe is to just not do it but you know we people still want to roll this stuff out people still want to play around with the technology um so i i wanted to ask this is in part just because like we kind of go back and forth about this internally and i think also in the industry how do you distinguish between a scam and exploit a rug pull like how do you define all of those because we ourselves kind of go back and forth over what we should call something and when and why and how the sure. money's been taken. So I'm curious what that looks like from your perspective. Sure. I hope this is a strictly academic professional interest, not application level, but uh, okay. Easy one to start with is the scam, right? Scams are easy because uh, they rely on deception. Fundamentally, you are misrepresenting something in order to fleece someone in order to take their wealth or something equivalent. You may not be after money, you might be after something else. And this is quite different from a hack or an exploit, which can have elements of deception, but do not necessarily. The difference when we're looking at hacks and exploits is you, you know, some malicious party, the attacker is taking some unilateral action in order to derive some gain, typically the theft of data or the theft of money of value. Uh, and there's not all that much that you can do to stop it. Now, 
once we're there, things start to look very different. So a hack is a super broad term, right? You can talk about smart contract hacks, you can talk about web hacking, you can talk about hacking the system and beating the man and, you know, fudging, I don't know, grades at a university, like whatever, you know, study hack, like that's a really broad term that we all use and it's not helpful or clear at all. But at the same time, everybody knows it's just so bad and it's got something to do with computers. So it's, it's pretty useful, but it's not specific. Whereas exploit, you know, in the context of this type of activity is much more clear. You have developed, you have developed some kind of attack vector for use against a particular code base. And you are exploiting the insufficiencies, the weaknesses of it. It implies, you know, some work was done. Um, it's also broad, you know, so it has some of the same problems as the term hack. But if you say, hey, you know, the attacker developed an exploit and he used that against Liam Dex, you know, you know exactly what's going on. It's a black hat hacker taking unilateral action for on a vulnerability that people may or may not know about, may or may not have been there intentionally, but is definitely there, right? As opposed to, oh, he hacked it. Like, okay, well, do we, do we include things like, you know, financial attacks in that, which are not really any technical failures? of any type, right? So things like the Mango Markets attack by Abby Heisenberg, you can look at that as an example. There have been many others or flash loans attacks in contrast to things like the Nomad attackers, like, okay, you know, they definitely exploited a pretty severe failing of the system for massive damage. Does that add a little bit of context? How I would recommend yeah. it. Yes, that, that's super helpful because I, I think a lot of things get labeled hacks. And it, it, as you pointed out, it's because it's so broad. You can probably call most things a hack and not technically be, in, be inaccurate when you say that. Um, I also wanted to ask about just the whole kind of financial dynamics involved with bug bounties. You know, the idea is that hopefully it is more profitable for somebody to report a bug rather than exploit it. And <laughs> I, I remember, I think when bug bounties first started getting rolled out in the industry a few years ago, I had just come from being at Goldman Sachs in the tech risk department. So I, I'm f I was familiar with them. I was like, oh yeah, makes lots of sense why those would be in this industry. But the talk then was that the pay wasn't that great. And so it was almost always more profitable for somebody to exploit rather than report. How have you been seeing that change? You know, how is that changing? Sure. It's funny that you mentioned that. So uh, it, we did the work, it was now two years ago, right? Of rolling that out. And in the beginning, we had like no adoption. It didn't make any sense to us. We're like, why is there no adoption for this amazing tool? We're like the open source, permissionless, let's all help each other culture. And yet our bug bounties are the worst. Like people don't deploy them. And when they do, they're, they're even worse run than, than like Microsoft bug bounty. Like, what are we doing? What are we doing? Uh, but we did that. And so the central challenge of that was this problem of the financial rewards and the rollout. How do you incentivize people to do something that is always going to be less lucrative than the alternative? And the answer is that's an unsolvable problem if you think of human beings as homo economicus, right? As people driven primarily by the pursuit of their rational interests, which they define primarily in the context of money. There's no way to beat the power of like, oh, wow, I can steal a billion dollars. No way to do it. But Human beings aren't like that. And so the primary lever that we pushed was a, in order to deal with that and where the industry has gone in terms of the financial aspect is by looking at a kind of sufficiency principle along multiple different axes. So, you know, why might someone do a bug bounty today when say in the example of the Euler case, they can, they can steal 200 mil 
you know, how would that ever be worthwhile? Well, imagine we go to that same guy and we say, well, instead of 200 mil, we'll pay you 10 mil, right? And we'll make you famous and we'll glorify you. We'll help build your career. And there's no risk attached to it this way. Nobody's going to come for you. Nobody's going to follow you. Nobody's going to look for you. Nobody's going to break your legs. Nobody's going to put a criminal case. Nobody's going to send you to jail. None of that bad stuff. Instead, you're going to be a hero. And everybody's going to want to work with you. Be your friend. And you'll be rich. You'll still be rich. Either way, you're rich. This has been the general uh, trajectory that we've been going down in the pushing of financial rewards. And it's been overall successful. Because people want many things in their life. And one of the things they don't want is risk. And there's a ton of risk when you engage in this you know, wantonly criminal behavior and steal $200 million from someone else. There's no way someone's not going to come looking for that. So that's how I would you know, frame the thinking. Why do you do it? Because there are other values in life, other things that are worth more. And because the downsides to engaging in the action are, are very substantial. Like you're going to be, you, you steal that money, you're, you have a life of looking over your shoulder. Is that always going to be worth it? Is that risk there? I don't think for most people, I don't think it needs to be worth it. Right. Um, and you, to kind of touch on this, like uh, you get glorified and maybe people don't send you to jail. That's, those are all huge advantages uh, for not being a black hat hacker. I don't think going to jail for a long time is, is necessarily an attractive bounty uh, by, any, by, any, by any term. Um, but I, I did find it interesting that a lot of the times uh, that hackers, uh, according to your hacker ecosystem survey, they do decide to, I guess, participate, to put it loosely, in, in sort of the, the coding atmosphere of, of crypto. And it looked like the, the, the highest reason people are doing this is, is simply for the technical challenge, just to see if they can find something broken, if they can do something strange with a piece of code. Um, and then shortly after that, it's, it is obviously the money. Uh, there's a, a key money feature that is attractive for, for doing this. And then third is, is this kind of career opportunity. So I, I would be very curious to learn a little bit more about sort of this uh, hacker to careerist uh, sort of lane that uh, emerges and, and maybe how you've encountered that and, and maybe some, some individuals that you've encountered at Unify, maybe Anon programmers or, or, or folks that have nothing to do with crypto who, who find themselves all of a sudden kind of launched into this crypto developer career? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I think a good, do you know uh, Poning.eth? Have you heard that, that name? Which one? Poning.eth. Oh, oh, P-W-N? Yeah. So Poning, I'll, I'll just, you know, dive right into the little story there while you look for him. Poning is an interesting guy. He's won about $8 million in bounties with us, I believe. Uh, and he has a very interesting background. So he's kind of a traditional cybersecurity guy who made the move into crypto, very private, minds his own business. You know, a very helpful person as well. You know, doesn't have a bad bone in his body, but he just loves the technical challenges. He loves the puzzles, right? He's an artist of his craft. And there's limited opportunities to express it. Now, then he discovers crypto bug bounty hunting. Okay, so you have the most hardened code bases in the world. And they're saying they want you to hack them. They want you to crack them. And they'll pay you incredible amounts of money if you succeed. That's like catnip to an artist whose specialty is, is breaking things apart. So he signs up to do that. Now, the technical challenge is, is kind of the first and foremost thing for most of these guys. The money makes it justifiable, right? Because how can you not you know, express and 
delve into your passion when someone says they'll give you a million dollars for it. But then the career thing solidifies it. So Honing does one, you know, it's a fabulous job. Honing does two, and everybody wants to talk to him. He's done a great service for the projects that he helped. They want to work with him. They want him to be a part of projects. They want him to audit your code. He's just a legend. He does it for three. It's like, wow, okay, this guy's a superstar. There's no better proof of excellence and craft in smart contract security than someone who can reliably crack hardened code and earn millions of dollars. It's like, it's better than any auditing, right? It's better than any auditor's brand. It's better than any auditing contest. It's better than anything else you can possibly think of because they are succeeding in the most harsh and defensive jungle in the world, the most battle-tested environment. And so like now you have, they have an infinite stream of business and attention accruing to them. Everybody wants to associate. And it's not unusual either. So, you know, we have another guy, Bob Face. He launched uh, some interesting projects. He found the first critical with us with Armour. And since then, it's been a roller coaster. Not only did we find several million dollars worth of additional bounties, but he's been in hot demand as a CTO, as a potential auditor. I mean, you, you just know he's of the highest possible caliber. And not just in skills, security skills, but also in ethics. For he could have stolen $100 million on multiple occasions that he chose not to. That's, you know, it's, it's rare that you can find people of that caliber that you can really believe in. And these guys are all demonstrating. If they get to the top of the Immunified Leaderboard, they're demonstrating that they've got the skills, they've got the discipline, they've got the desire, and they've got the integrity. So that's this this whole hacker. What starts is like the expression of artistic skill, maybe a lot of greed mixed in, you know, can be for sure, turns into career and community respect very rapidly. And then it's theirs to lose. It's like, okay, well, we could make this your new lifestyle, good sir. Do you want to help people for a living and get paid for it or not? Up to you. I think most of them say yes. Yeah, I mean, I, the space is certainly better for it, I'd say. Um, I wanted to ask about the whole dynamic of, you know, reporting something and then you do need to allow a window for the company to address whatever vulnerability it is you've you've found. Um, I just anecdotally, I've heard from a few security engineers who've been frustrated that they reported and then nothing got done. And so I, I'm wondering to what extent you're seeing the industry kind of I guess, pick up the pace with responding to these things? Because it's one thing to have a standing bug bounty program. It's another to, you know, have the bandwidth and the time and the attention to actually follow up on what's being found. Because when you don't, that means you're just kind of leaving yourself open to being attacked. So uh, tell me a little bit about what that's like now. Uh, stressful is the short answer. The, the longer one is, that's, that's one of the toughest problems in bug bounties, right? Bug bounties is this amazing tool for crowdsourcing brilliance from the entirety of the most technical ones in the world. But you are now responsible for maintaining this infrastructure that is a constant, constant resource drain. So in the traditional web world, you'll often have like exceptionally slow, I don't know, hardware manufacturers. They could take six months to a year to respond to you, if ever. Never mind implementing the fix. Okay. So it's like extremely painful there. Now in crypto, we're a lot better because things move so much faster in our industry and you have the power to directly exploit it, it gets a lot more high priority. So, you know, our SLAs are seven and 14 days, depending on the severity, which is like, that's ungodly fast 
compared to traditional book venture programs. But even then, it's difficult for projects to keep up with that. You know, we certainly have difficulty with projects keeping up with that. And the reason is there's so many other things to do. There's so many responsibilities. Some of these vulnerabilities can be extremely complex to try. If you only have so many engineers, it's hard to stay on top of that. So this is a continuing challenge for which there's only two fundamental solutions. Or I guess there's three. Solution number one is that people write really, really good reports and it makes it as simple as possible for triaging purposes. We're pushing that as much as possible. Solution number two, which is the one we always demand from our customers and our partners, but you know, people succeed or fail as they succeed or fail, which is allocate serious security and you know, engineering resources to your program. You can imagine this is not always popular. It sounds really expensive. It is expensive to have people checking everything at any time of day. And number three, you know, moving towards increasing automation. But the problem with automation is like, we have an automated uh, system. It's about 95% accurate for most types of reports. And it's great for the things that it does. But the whole problem is you're checking for unknown unknowns in code. By definition, most machines have never seen this before. So like predicting them is kind of nigh impossible. So we can, if we've seen it before, we can predict with reasonable reliability. But beyond that, it's like, you know, the system just, there's no chance. It has to be human check. And that's it. And until we have, you know, more comprehensive investment from projects, better reports from hackers, or, you know, better tooling development, which we're working on, it's not, it's just a challenging problem. There's no quick fix. You can think of a bug bounty program as kind of like a reverse 911. That's how we like to think of our work and our role and, and the seriousness we should take to it. And then you tell the projects, hey, look, so we can help you. We can be your triagers if you want. We have automated systems that are going to help. But look, you have to have someone on the line all the time. And, and they can only be your most technical expert security engineer or protocol developer. That's just rough. That's just rough. We'll be right back after this. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, that's a really tough job, I think, in a, in a space like in the crypto space. I mean, Sunday night, like, you know, 4 a.m. Uh, in most parts of the world or something like that, you know, a hack gets, a hack breaks out. Someone loses hundreds of millions of dollars. It's uh, absolute chaos. Um, but I, I guess I, I was also curious, too, about, um, you know, we had we had uh, Kevin Owaki from uh, formerly of Gitcoin, well, I guess founder of, of Gitcoin uh, on, on the pod as well. And I was just curious, how does a bug bounty um, platform, how do you, what is the business model exactly? Because you're basically connecting, you know, developers with, you know, projects and you guys just take a slice off, off, off of that. I mean, how, how exactly, does, how exactly does that work? I was just out, out of curiosity. Sure. Well, it's an important question, uh, because we live or die based on it. We charge in two ways. So on one side for our core product, we charge on a percentage basis. So we take a 10% fee on top of funds paid out. The white hat. So this pushes us in the direction of delivering as high quality vulnerabilities as possible 
and our, connects our ability to deliver value to customers to our potential revenue. And this is our, our, our core business model. The second one is we do have kind of subscription products. So for example, we have our triaging service. Lots of people don't want to wake up on Sunday at 4 a.m. in the morning to deal with the report. And you can't know if the report is that serious hack or if it's just spam when it comes in, right? Someone has to check it. And so they contract us and our triaging team to provide as close to 24-7 coverage as we possibly can and process all reports. The only things that they see are the valid reports. And this we charge on a subscription basis. It's like, look, we have a bunch of guys. We're keeping them around the clock. You pay for their time. I guess that would also mean that you guys have a pretty global team as well in order to kind of cater to, you know, I imagine what is a pretty internationally diverse uh, audience of clients. Very much so. Very much so. So our customers are all over the world. We have guys in random Pacific islands and we have, you know, projects in the depths of South America. Of course, there's plenty of you know, North American and European projects. And then we have team members spread all over the world. We do need to maintain that type of broad coverage. And so we have a particular pressure on us at all point to make sure someone is up to deal with whatever problem that may come. And it does make for a kind of a weird working environment, I must say. An interesting, like full commitment to remote, remote work, but it's definitely, uh, it's definitely weird to have to have someone in all these different time zones. I, I, I can imagine. Um, and I guess speaking about like, you know, just your, your customer base, I was reading an interesting pr profile uh, about you. I think uh, I was on Cointelegraph or, or another publication describing uh, sort of the idea that came that came to you for, for beginning uh, Immunify was you, you had been investing in uh, unsecured crypto projects. And it kind of was the, I thought the, the profile had left it at, at that. And so it made me wonder now that you're running a bug bounty program and you're so closely engaged with, you know, potential uh, hacks and that kind of thing. Were you also maybe, you know, Immunify's sort of first customer or, you know, were you also the victim of some sort of exploit or hack for a product you were invested in? Of course, of course. <laughs> I've been in this industry a long time, which means I've gotten hacked, I've gotten scammed, I've dealt with my friends' hacks, dealt with my friends' scams. I've used too many exchanges that didn't have a happy ending. Mm. So, you know, I've... <laughs> Primarily crypto exchanges or DeFi projects or just a pretty even blend of, of everything in between? Um, for me, mostly crypto. So it was the earlier days where I learned a lot of my hard lessons. Back when, you know, I don't know if you remember some of the old, like, say, NXT exchanges that were built in or some of the really janky stuff, like when we had Ether Delta. Ether Delta was the first like, <laughs> yeah. kind of big popular decks. It was such, it was not great, not a great experience. But those are the things we used. And before then, we had even weaker, you know, centralized exchanges. And right back down to Mt. Gox and things previous to that. And I think I lost, you know, I had enough bad knocks there to teach me a bit. When, when DeFi came along, so the first thing, when I was really starting investing in DeFi, I was playing around with early MakerDAO and some other projects. I was like, okay, well, I know how to validate how secure a centralized exchange is. Right? There's a bunch of things I can check. Most of it's still going to be opaque to me. But... There's a lot that you can tell about the caliber of a team based on how they conduct themselves and what they present to the public. So, for example, you can tell a lot about, say, the quality of the Kraken team with their longevity, their commitment to security, their constant engagement with the regulators who are trying to get licenses everywhere, you know, their personal liability on the line. The founder is still in the business and most of the early people are still operating. Like You can tell a lot by that as opposed to many of the exchanges that have come and gone. But with you know, these, these smart contracts, that was really new territory. I was like, okay, I don't have the mental models for thinking about risk here. I don't know. And it's that, that uh, fear, maybe a little bit of paranoia 
mixed in a lot of paranoia that propelled me to go and figure that out. And it was the result of those findings and that fear in myself. I was like, shoot, am I making an irresponsible choice? Right. Am I doing something very foolish with my money? I think this is the future, but I don't have any reason to be safe. I don't have any reason to feel safe. It was that that led to the development of Munify as my hope, the most important solution to that safety issue. Just imagine early days, MakerDAO, when it was really, you know, nobody used it and, and you're going to put in a hundred grand and then your partner comes and says, is that a good idea? And what do you say? Right. Well, how do you answer that question? Surprisingly difficult. You want to, right. You want to be able to say yes, but <laughs> risk. Um, I, I wanted to ask about, um, you are talking about, you mentioned a little earlier, um, I picked up on this, I didn't get a chance to ask then about the idea of automation and kind of trying to deal with just the, the incident, like the churn, the cue that winds up showing up for any response teams, you know, inbox or whatever, because they have to figure out, okay, what's a real report and what's not. Um, uh, how, how do you reckon with AI, right? Because we've seen a lot of people test out some of these models by asking it to exploit a smart contract, exploit this project, do this, do that. And then on the other side of things, and you kind of pointed this out too, you know, you can use some of this automation, some of these things to try to find problems, but like you're looking for something you, you haven't found that we haven't seen before. You're looking for an unknown. So how do you square with what's happening in AI and all the, the progress being made there? Sure. We're pretty excited by it, to be honest. I mean, there's this, this quote from a, a friend of mine. He says, whether you, whether you think AI is going to steal your job or it's just going to make your working day so much better, you know, you're right. And that's basically how we feel about it. Uh, although we have a hope for both, you know, may it take as many of our overburdened jobs as it can and also make our working days much the better. So we are excited by its applications to our field, but from like a code review perspective, it hasn't really proven very useful. So you have things like GitHub Copilot and some of the other tools for reviewing code that are more useful for things like JavaScript and C and these, these more popular languages. But the stuff on the auditing or the hacking front has proven pretty useless. Um, and so there've been you know, different attempts and tests to use it to audit code and it just comes down with gobbledygook. And for our part, we've received hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands at this point, of chat GPT reports as people basically just attempt to like, well, maybe there's something here. I don't know how to check it, but I'll just, I'll just run it through the system. Who knows? Maybe I'll get right. And then they spray and pray. And we ban that as a matter of course, at this point, now they're kind of easy to spot. So we're not impressed at its utility as a code review tool yet. We think it's an amazing technology for a bunch of other applications, which we are exploring. We are excited about. I wish it was better for code review because, you know, I run a very difficult to maintain 24 seven triaging team and any automations would be amazingly helpful there. But, you know, as far as we can tell, we're a long way away from being able to use this in practical security concerns for all the reasons you just mentioned. Yeah. And then I want to make sure I understand what you said there. So people are saying, okay, I'm going to pick a project and I'm going to ask chat GPT to find a vulnerability in it. And they're taking whatever chat GPT spits out and then submitting it to ImmuneFi trying to get a bounty. Yeah, specifically they'll they'll take a snippet of the code, right, or as much of it as they can handle. So it's not it's not isolated. It's not like check the program yourself. It's not a, 
an auto GPT agent that's kind of proactively reviewing and making garbage reports. It's like, okay, I'm going to review this particular isolated snippet of the code and see what I come up with. And then the chat GPT will almost always hallucinate a response, right? So it's, it'll give a very credibly convincingly argued gobbledygook statement that we then have to check at 4 a.m. on the Sunday evening and be like, sir, please don't do this anymore. Just stop. Just stop for all of us. That's rough. That's that's an unfortunate evolution of bots <laughs> for all yeah. of us. It sounds like a good way to tie up your triaging team when I, uh, you know, if I were to commit an actual hack to just spam you with a bunch of chat GPT generated reports. You got to go could through be. it. You got to go through it. <laughs> could be. Could be. No, I don't think I've seen that yet. But now that I know that you have that type of diabolical mind, I'll have to be on the lookout for it. Guys, Liam's yeah, man, it's, it's, yeah, no, I'm just, jo- of course, I'm just joking. Yes. I don't know, I don't know the first thing uh, around a smart contract. Um, I just, I've just been around a lot of cynical individuals since being in the space. So, uh, you know, my mind kind of wanders in that direction these days. But I, I did want to uh, get back a little bit to this, uh, your, your, your Q1 report. It was very interesting, a lot of very interesting, uh, fun details in here, uh, specifically about the rise in sort of Arbitrum, the, the uh, popular layer two uh, Ethereum scaling project, the rise in targeted attacks on Arbitrum uh, this past quarter. It seems a little bit odd, but uh, you mentioned in the report it's, it's on account of the, the, their, their token drop. But I was just curious about how you can connect those two things. Why is a new token drop uh, related to you know an, an uptick in sort of attacks on a network? That's a great question. We're going to have to speculate to answer that because at least in my opinion, and this is different than some of my team members who arguably are more informed and more expert about this than I am, but at least in my opinion, it's still something that's a little bit unknown. Basically asking, you know, what is it that, uh, that an impending airdrop uh, that incentivizes increased amounts of critical activity, be it that, you know, hacks or scams or any otherwise. And I think the answer is when you have an airdrop, you what you see is a lot of people trying to game that airdrop, right? So you've got this big inflow of value coming into the system as people try to position their funds in such a way and their, their on-chain activity in such a way as to capture as much of that airdrop for them as possible. You know, free money if you're willing to hop through a few hoops. And many of those hoops may be interaction with local smart contracts or actual use of the products, right? Like a better and better an airdrop, the more and more demanding and restrictive the conditions for participation are. And so requiring use of, you know, various on-chain products uh, is the no-brainer thing to do. And this creates an opportunity for scams. Then when you have the post-airdrop period, so after that money is distributed according to whatever the criteria and qualifying are, you basically just enriched a whole bunch of people who took, you know, gambles with their money and moving their cash, their, their, their value to this new frontier. And they're, they're suddenly irresponsibly rich. I don't know if you've, you've seen the psychological effects of what happened when people win the lottery, but, you know, getting a great airdrop is not so dissimilar. You don't really feel like it's real money in the beginning, unless you're really disciplined. Unless you're really disciplined. And so these users are, are likely and prone to be more vulnerable, to be more gullible. They've just been rewarded for engaging in this pro-social, you know, financially risky action. They're likely to be more gullible and more vulnerable to further attacks, hacks and scams and various things like that. So both of these, like this, this infusion of value, this distribution of value creates the, the the prerequisites for further acquisition, accelerating, bringing cash in, and then for messing around with it, lowering people's risk tolerance, or I should say raising people's risk tolerance in a variety of ways, 
And it's just like, okay, that's what you're looking for. If you're a malicious attacker and you want to fleece people, you're looking for the sheep that aren't that smart, right? They just, they just don't have the barriers in place. They just believe. And in the lead up to an airdrop and immediately following probably you know, gives a lot of those perfect conditions. Interesting. I think that also sheds a very interesting uh, light on how it's hacks and exploits and scams is, is not just a technical issue. It's also a very human sort of social, socially organized or uh, schemed issue as well. And uh, speaking of which, I would also like to touch on BNB chain being the prime target for uh, specifically rug pulls, according to your Q1 report. And I think this is a rather interesting. And I think in, in, in two, you know, two parts, let's define exactly what a rug pull is, because we're throwing out a lot of sort of these strange crypto native terms. Um, and then also why is BNB chain the home of the rug pull? Sure. That is not the FTAF you anybody's looking for. So really a gifted way to put it, but ugh, poor guys. Um, okay. Number one, what is a rug pull? Rug pull, pulling the rug out from under you, right? So this kind of, you know, dramatic surprise at your expense. Uh, fleecing you in the process. In the context of what it means practically, it means that someone, uh, uh, basically a malicious attacker, has masqueraded as a project creator and put um, the conditions for them to steal the money deposited into subcontracts or tools or products from you into it. And this can take the form of uh, just a multi-sig, a multi-sig on which they are all the signers and they can maliciously sign transactions to steal the money, pause things and steal the money. Or it can be more complex where everything looks kosher, including kind of decentralization ethos, but they've created a deliberate vulnerability in the code. And they can pretend, oh, someone hacked it externally. It wasn't me. It's a horrible thing that happened to us. We're all unlucky together when, of course, you know, they were sock puppeting and they are the attacker. Uh, so you have things like that. Uh, we've seen all manner and infinite variety. Unfortunately, it's very popular because it's very easy to do with an increasingly anon culture. Right? So in, in encouraging Anon culture, which originally came about due to a strong combination of internet nativity, of crypto, and you know, us needing to protect ourselves fundamentally against enroaching powers via from the beginning with Satoshi Nakamoto to many of the other Anons that exist in the space today. You're basically also creating the condition for all the wolves to come in and be like, cool, we blend in, right? And that's what they do. Now, why is BNB chain the center point for this activity? Why is it so popular? I think you're, you're, you already intuited it, right? With the way you phrased that, that it's social and cultural. And you're 100% right, Liam. That's what it is. In BNB chain, they've created this incredible community around the Binance users, which is typically retail, often less sophisticated on a per capita basis. Obviously, if, you know, huge amount of sophisticated users on Binance, but it's so big that you have millions, tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions at this point of uh, retail users who are more gullible. And they've created all these amazing you know, off-ramps for you to go directly from Binance over to BSC and interact with its ecosystem. They're pouring resources in to make it credible, to increase the amount of activity on it, doing all sorts of great stuff. You know, Much credit to Binance for making BNB chain such a great product. But in the course of that, they've also created this uh, hunting ground for the wolves. And there's so many wolves, right? You, you spoke about the, the cynicism you've seen so much. There's just so many wolves in our industry. The scammers, the hackers, and a lot of them are very professional. They're basically running businesses. 
this is their vocation. They're doing it day in, day out, cycling between different products where the different products are scams, closing up shop and then starting some new scam or hack later when they have time or the opportunity. And BNB chain is full of this incredible amount of value that's been floating out of Binance from day one, the world's largest and most liquid crypto exchange. And it's also got the combination of highly gullible users. So we see a lot of the same, you know, same characteristics that we saw in the Arbitrum case with those polls, except magnified for Binance's multitudes larger than Arbitrum. And it's attack, you know, it's system of value and it's pushing its users out to BNB chain is going on all the time. Now, because of that, the scammers, many scammers, many problematic people have set up home there. Like they just don't need to leave because there's this constant influx of users. Why would they go anywhere? There's no point. And they're enjoying reaping the rewards. To Binance's credit, like we shouldn't discount them. They've done an incredible job to try and limit this activity. We see that with like how they shut down the BNB bridge when it was exploited in a serious way. And they managed to do that on a moment's notice. Very impressive work, you know, not to be sneezed at. And they have a bunch of other security initiatives that they've been doing. And they have a bunch of social and cultural initiatives. And from time to time, they have you know gone out to track down and deal with these hackers themselves and report them to law enforcement with all the information they can provide. So they're doing the best they can. But the reality is, it's just a perfect storm. It's a perfect storm for hunters to come in and take advantage of people who are just beginning to experiment with DeFi. And it's not going to be solved until the projects themselves improve their security policies and their security standards, which is, you know, they're working on it, but it's a, just a really tough problem. It's just really tough. Yeah, it's, it makes perfect sense. And it's unfortunate, of course, but you know, if you're, if you're a professional hacker, you know, only a small percentage of people are maybe going to fall for whatever it is you're trying to pull off. You go where you can get it in front of as many people as possible. So, yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to switch gears a little bit to talk about, um, immune, is it immunify or immunify? Cause I've said both. People say a lot of things. <laughs> I have learned to appreciate it in all of its diversity, but we say immunify. Okay. Immunify. immunify. Okay. So I want to talk about Immunify, the company, because you guys did a raise last year of all years to be doing a raise. Um, I guess first kind of walk us through what it was like doing a raise during what turned out to be a pretty bad year for the industry. And then, you know, give us a preview of what's on the roadmap coming up. Sure. Okay. So, yeah, um, for anybody who doesn't know, it was a brutal year for fundraising. A uh, brutal year for building. I have my scars, but I'm lucky we worked with some pretty great people. And so, you know, definitely not the worst out of the luck. So we raised about 24, 23, 24 million dollars uh, from a host of investors, most of which who had backed us before in previous rounds. So we were going, you know, two friends, two people who had already backed us. And they were like, hey, you guys have done good work. Why haven't you done it, you know, 10 times as much? And I was like, I don't know, because it's hard to build a business. They're like, okay, we'll solve that problem for you. Not quite so smooth in reality, but that's the, the, the sentiment of it all. And we're using that to try and create a permanent solution on the disclosure front. So I used the analogy before of the reverse 911 layer, right? There's a 911 layer, it connects to every project, but instead of, you know, you calling the emergency services, the emergency services, in this case, the White Hat hackers are calling you and being like, hey, we got a problem, sir. We got to fix it. ASAP. And there's a lot that needs to be built for that system. Let's touch on a few things. We need things like the triaging, right? It's very, very difficult to have a reliable 24 seven triaging. That's like having a, you know, 
a white hat SWAT squad ready to support projects at any time and validate reports. So that's you know one place where that took a lot of investment for us. We need everything that someone needs to run a project so that it can process you know dozens, hundreds, and eventually thousands of reports per month, per week, per day, getting up to there. So all these automation tools, which are very complex to build, along with everything you need on kind of the processing perspective, the compliance perspective to do that safely, because you don't want to do a great job and stop hacks and then Uncle Sam knock on your door and say, hey, you know, we have a new problem. Both dangerous in different ways. And we need on-chain features. So in our case, we've been working on this, this Bolt system for some time. Uh, there's nothing like it. We think in the industry or what's what's going to come with it that will allow people to have the proof of assets that they need every project will be able to put the money in and say okay you know i'm i'm showing that all the value is there i'm a very very serious actor and then in the future add whatever restrictions are useful to give further assurances so they can say hey look not only i'm so good for my money you know mr white hat i have already put my money aside to pay you in this vault before you even discover the vulnerability you can see it right here it's public and I've already subjected myself to conditions to ensure that I will be a responsible and good faith actor. So that's a big project we're working on to create this trust. There's no way to automate the bug bounty transaction, unfortunately. It's always going to have this human element. So we just have to create the trust uh, in the most serious way, in the most manual way that we can. So these are a few big projects that we have going right now. They will take us a long while. The, the end result, we hope, will be a system that the entire industry, two thousands and tens of thousands of projects can use with confidence and just say, hey, look, you got this problem. Okay, go use Immunify. It'll take care of as much of it as can possibly taken care of for you and you focus back on building. Gotcha. Very interesting. Uh, we're coming up to uh, just about the end of our, our time here, Mitchell, but I did have a, a kind of a, a last question uh, to kind of would kind of bundle up some of the things that we're talking about into some sort of quick, maybe 30 second step guide you would give to maybe a newbie crypto investor, um, how they can check if a project they're getting into is, you know, going to be one fraught with these wolves you've mentioned earlier, or it's going to be, you know, uh, something a little bit more positive. How can they, how can they check if a crypto project is uh, legitimate before they invest. Sure. That is knowledge hard one, Liam. I imagine all of us have, have gone the hard way to figure out our version of that. But for me, it's usually questions about transparency and tr questions about history. So, you know, how long has the project been around for? You know, are these people really committed to it? Um, is it transparent? Do I see the institution of the security best practices? So, you know, do they have good documentation on their code? Do they have audits? Do they have a bug bounty program? Do they have someone in their team with security in the title? That's always a good tell. I would say in their documentation, does it show how the system works in detail? Has they, have they treated in their documentation to think like an attacker and to include that in ideally the public facing documentation? So anyone can go and be like, okay, these guys have really thought about what attacking looks like. I would be asking questions about their broader security status. Like, are they taking measures technically or otherwise to think about security more comprehensively? You can figure out these things pretty easily by like, hey, what well, are you guys all using your own machines? Are there any other measures that you take? You know, do you have all the relevant certificates on your website? You know, there's lots of stuff that often the teams will be fine to share because it's not mission critical, it's not super sensitive, that will give you a taste for how seriously. They take security. 
And then I would look at who they associate with, right? Are they associating with institutions and projects and partners that have a history of strong security practices? If they're using a bug bounty platform at all, that's a good sign, but then there's, you can rank them, right? In terms of the quality, same with the auditors, right? We have kind of bottom of the barrel auditors, and then you have top class ones, great brands that you really have to commit to. And you have the same thing in terms of investors. There's lots of funds that are, let's just say, very temporary schemes. And then there's institutions that have been around for a long time. They invest in their own security platform that they give to their partners. So you can use this web of trust to evaluate these projects as well. Uh, very unlikely that they're likely to rug if a number of top tier names, top tier auditors, top tier bug bounty platforms, top tier investors are all deciding to work with a particular project. That's a pretty reliable indicator as well. Very helpful. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it, Mitchell. Um, I hope <laughs> I hope we've all seen our last scams and exploits and rug pulls, but I hope. I can hope, right? <laughs> Me too. We just have to we just have to pray hard enough. Maybe it'll work out this time. But until that point works, we'll be here doing our part. That's our show today. Thanks for listening. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to GM wherever you podcast. And if you head to our website, decrypt.co, you can find the full videos of every interview with every guest. Finally, we have a Telegram room for our loyal GM listeners. The address is t.me slash GM podcast. If you pop in there, you can get direct access to the co-hosts. You can suggest future guests, submit comments, and ask questions. It's t.me slash GM podcast. GM. GM.